Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, and thank you for uh, his perfect demonstration of your faithfulness. Lord, I would pray that my words would be clear. I pray that your people would be uh, encouraged, strengthened, convicted, led. And Father, we would take this word <clears throat> that is broken and um, that it would yield a fruit uh, for some 30, 60, 100 fold, that it would bear great fruit in our life, leading to our joy and to your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, <clears throat> when you think about Jesus preaching on heaven, that's kind of a, a neat topic to hear on. Um, and, and also, when he preaches on hell, it's an important topic to hear. You know, you, people are really perked up when you preach on heaven and hell. And when you, if you were to take all of Jesus' teaching on heaven, massively significant, and all of his teaching on hell, equally significant, you put them together, uh, it's not as much as how much he teaches on money. And isn't that interesting that a full 15% of Jesus' teaching was on money? Now, why is that? God short on cash? I, I, I think that the reason Jesus spoke to money so frequently it is because of the, um, of the window that money provides to look into our own souls. How we handle money, what we think about money, how we spend our money, how we earn our money, all these things are very telling. Getting at parts of us that other things really couldn't do as effectively. You know, we've been going through Malachi, and this is why I like preaching through a book, because God is just taking these topics. Remember, he's preaching to the people of God now. He's not preaching to the pagan. He's not preaching to the outsider. He's preaching to the people of God, and he's trying to instruct them on areas where they have been failing. Now, God is not just an axe grinder. He speaks to areas of failure so as to call us to repent to return to him, to enjoy him, that in repentance will be our greatest joy. And so as you hit this passage today, he charges the people of God with robbing him. I mean, it's almost as if we're being brought before the judge. He says, you're robbing me. What does that mean? This passage is often taken just to be used when you need to raise money. When we raised money for the building, I intentionally didn't go to this passage. So, so I, I think it teaches more than that. And if you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 6, we'll just move through verse 12. So 6 to 12, Malachi chapter 3, 6 to 12. This is God speaking. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the heavens, excuse me, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I'm sure many of you have heard this passage preached before. Um, Notice though, before we talk about money, he addresses this issue of God's faithfulness. So he says right off the bat, I the Lord don't change. This is what we call the immutability of God, that there is no change. There's no vacillation with God, his person, his power, his character, his goodness, his might. They never change. It's always the same. He's not like man. In Numbers 23, we even sang it at the beginning, that he's not like man, that he should change his mind. He's not like the son of man, that he should lie. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The questions are no, of course not. God's not a man. He's not like us. God's, you know, when we think about something stable, we think of not man, we think of the earth. You know, this place never changes. It's always the same. And yet God, even this place will change, but God won't change. In fact, in Psalm 102, the psalmist writes, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. And they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. God always remains the same. Even this place will pass away, but God always remains the same. It has to be this way if God is God. I mean, change always implies imperfection. I mean, either either you're moving towards perfection, that requires change, or you're moving away from perfection, but any change implies imperfection. And so if God is perfect, he, he has no change. He must remain the same. Same, he must be immutable. Again, you look at us, and, and we vacillate. I mean, we vacillate on our opinions. We always want to change. That's the whole thing about the New Year's resolution. I want to get better. I want to lose more weight. I want to make more money, be a better parent. We always want to change to some perspective that we have of perfection. Even the scientific community always changing. I remember butter's good, butter's bad, butter's good. Breast milk, good. Breast milk, bad. Breast milk, good. You know, even the scientific, everybody changes. Even the gods and pagan religions were always changing. They changed in affections. They changed in direction. But God remains the same. Now, why is this before a passage on raising money? Why is he talking about the immutability of God? Look what he says here. It's to demonstrate his faithfulness. Remember, this passage in verse 6 is like a hinge on a door. It looks at last week's passage, and it looks at this week's passage. So last week we talked about the justice of God. The people were complaining. God, where is your justice? They were accusing him of changing. You know, you bring justice, then you don't bring justice. And so God, last week as we read, God says, no, I'm a God of justice. I bring it, I'll bring it. In other words, this messenger of the covenant that we looked at last week, that he has brought justice. He's either going to bear divine justice in himself. In other words, we saw the messenger of the covenant. The culminator of all covenants is Christ himself. And in Christ, he would bear the judgment, the justice of God on behalf of the believer. He would bear the sin and the guilt, and God would bring his judgment or his justice down on Christ so as to forgive us. And that way, God could be both the just and the justifier. But we also know That for those outside of Christ, justice will be brought on the last day. Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, will bring it, that is God's divine justice, on that last day. So so God's saying, I don't change. You don't see justice happening right now. Don't fear. 
God's not changing here. But it also looks forward. When he says that I don't change, God is not just just, but he's faithful. Look at why he says this. In verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, God is saying to the nation of Israel, your existence is testifying to my faithfulness and mercy because you're not consumed. That word means you still exist. Your continued existence is proof of my faithfulness to you. Look what he says and the reason why. In verse 7, he says, From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statues. You've not kept them. In other words, Israel had been faithless since the days of the fathers, and yet God still preserves them. God still acts with mercy. Why is this? Why would God put up with such an this indifference, this apathy, this absolute disobedience of Israel. Why would God do that? Why is God remaining faithful to a faithless people? Well, number one, I think it's to display God as utterly, unchangingly faithful, which hopefully for you will be an anchor. But, but more than that, remember God made a covenant with Adam. Adam sinned and all fell into rebellion. And so God said to Adam, there'll be a seed through you that will restore men back to me. That covenant with Adam was then explained in greater detail with a covenant to Abraham. And in Abraham, he said that through your seed, all the families of this world will be blessed. In other words, God has made a covenant to his creation that he's going to redeem a people to himself. That's the promise of God. And God is staying faithful to that covenant that he made to redeem a people. This is good news. We cannot beat ourselves out of a paper bag, and yet God has chosen to redeem a people. His his promise of salvation is not rooted in our obedience, but in his mercy. And that's why the faithfulness remains. He's being faithful to his own character to save. Now, When you think about this, I know it's counterintuitive to us to think that my existence continues because of God's mercy. You think that your existence, and I tend to think my existence, is part and parcel of my responsibility. My existence is almost a right. I deserve to live. I mean, what do we think when someone dies at 21 or 25 or 30? They were taken too young. They didn't deserve to die that young. Why do we say that? Do do we just have it in our mind that we're guaranteed 75 years? Do we ever see the faithfulness of God as being the cause of our continued breathing? I I mean, think about it for a minute. It strikes us as almost shocking that I'm saying this. You're saying, well, Tom, how can you say that? I mean, of course God wants us to live. No, I I want you to hear me say that I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you are not consumed. His faithfulness is the cause of your existence. His kindness and his mercy is why we breathe and why we live right now. You You don't deserve it necessarily. You didn't earn it. It's not a right. It's not an inalienable right that you have to have a certain set of years in a certain place living with certain comforts, it's not yours. It's his. He's the creator. He's given all life, and he's given 
everything life. It all, it all comes under him and is fueled by him. And so are we not overwhelmed with, well, that is faithful. That is kind. Shouldn't we be satisfied and happy and excited? God, you have been faithful to me. This unchanging faithfulness of God is supposed to be for you an anchor, a foundation of your joy, your satisfaction, your ability to be content in the middle of difficulties. You know, Charles Spurgeon was that great London preacher in the mid-19th century and uh, just had a way with words. He worked with analogies in just profound ways. And he wrote this about Malachi. He says, The stability which the anchor gives the ship when it at last has obtained a holdfast is like that which the Christian hope affords him when it fixes itself upon the glorious truth that with God there is no change, neither shadow of turning. Whatever his attributes were of old, they are now. His power, wisdom, justice, truth are alike unchanged. He has ever been the refuge of his people. They're stronghold in the day of trouble. He is their sure helper still. He is unchanged in his love. He has loved his people with an everlasting love, and he loves them now as much as he ever did. And when all earthly things shall have melted in this last conflagration, his love will still wear the dew of its youth. Precious is the assurance that he changes not. The wheel of providence revolves, but its axle is eternal love. That is the nature of God. It's unchanging faithfulness. Now, why is that? Think about it. We move from that right into giving. God is calling for us to be faithful. God is calling for us to love him far greater. God is calling for him to be our treasure. And so God moves from this call to faithfulness. You notice at the end of verse 7, he says, return to me and I'll return to you. In other words, these people, we as well, are often straying away from faithfulness. God's saying, I'm faithful. I'm calling you to return to me. That is grace, friends. The fact that he says, return to me in the midst of our disobedience without consuming us is just a further demonstration of his faithfulness. So here's what he did. He says, return to me. Guess what he goes after, though? He goes after the area of faithlessness that we have in terms of our money. And he begins to say, in the face of this faithfulness, he says to these people, you are not faithful to me. You're, in fact, robbing me. Now, they, of course, say, well, how are we robbing you? Well, he gives them a very simple answer. He says, in your tithes and your contributions. In other words, you have not been tithing. Now, a word for tithe just means, the word itself, tithe, just means tenth, one-tenth. And he says that you have not contributed your tithe to the work of God. In the face of all this kindness, we can't even muster up 10%. He's not even talking about the other 90% yet. He's just saying that 10% you can't even muster up. Now, This tithe, let me just give you a brief history. You know, the idea of tithing was not just known to uh, the religion of Israel. Um, Pagan religions gave sacrifices and gave offerings as well. But uh, But for our purposes, the first time you see tithe is with Abraham. Abraham, of course, the father of the faith and he... um, His nephew, Lot, if you remember the story in Genesis 12, the nephew Lot is taken and carried away by these wicked kings. And so God raises up Abraham. Abraham goes against some just unbeatable odds and cleans the house and gets Lot and gets all their spoil. And he runs into this unique priest called Melchizedek. 
And he gives him a tenth of everything he has, of the spoil, out of gratitude to God. Right? And then you don't see the tithe again, where you see it in Jacob, but then you see it in the law, in the Mosaic law, where God commands the people to give a tenth of all your produce to upkeep the temple, to feed the Levites and the priests and for the work of the Lord. That's where you see it. You begin to see it. And now, that, that was 10% of all the produce. Now, these contributions that he's speaking about, those were over and above the tithe. And those could be voluntary or special offerings that would go to the priests. Now, the people were not tithing, either with their 10% or their additional givings. There were other tithes, actually, and there were other types of offerings. But they were faithless in all of those. In fact, it was so bad that the Levites had to leave the temple work and go start farming again because people were not contributing to the needs of the temple. And so here's what God says. So that's the situation. God just looks at the situation. He assesses it, and he says, hey, you're robbing me. I'm giving you life. I'm not consuming you. I'm giving you breath. You are not returning to me a portion that recognizes I'm doing these things. And so you're robbing me. And so here's what he does. He says, you are cursed with a curse. Should draw your mind back to Genesis chapter 3, right? I'm going to curse the ground, and I'm going to curse the work that Adam has to do to work the ground. He says, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me. And, and what was happening was there was drought conditions. The crops were failing. There were insects devouring that which was growing. And so God brings discipline down upon the people to wake them up to the reality that they are robbing God. Haggai, the prophet, about 75 years prior to that, warned of the same thing. Listen to what he says. Haggai now is preaching to the same group that had come from Babylon. And he says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you will withhold their dew, and the earth will withhold its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land, and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and upon all your labors. In other words, he's saying, you know what, you want to play ball? That's fine. You want to rob me? I'll just start bringing some drought to wake you up to the reality of it. And what you think you have, I'll blow it away. God's not being one with sour grapes here. He's simply trying to wake up a people to see his faithfulness and respond in kind. I I wonder, let me just give you a sidebar. This is for free. Um, I wonder, living in one of the most affluent nations in the world with the most amount of conveniences and satisfying experiences, Why are we so dissatisfied? Why, if you were to get an iPad, when the next one comes out, you want that one and not this one? Why is there such a high level of dissatisfaction with what we have? Why is there such want in a land of such plenty? I was reminded in Proverbs chapter 11, listen to what Solomon writes. He says, one gives freely and yet grows richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. In other words, think about that. I mean, it's profound because I am subject to the same desires that you have after I get something new 
the next generation, and you're like, you want that? Well, it's got this feature. We got a beautiful van back, I don't know, 15 years ago. The next year, the vans came out, and this van that we got, we loved. You had to be a gorilla to get the seats out of it. So then the next year, but Carol really could haul them right out <laughs> in a skinny minute. But, but the next year, I'll, I'll get a talking to on that one. <laughs> Are you saying I'm a gorilla? No, I'm saying that she lifts weights. So, so the next year the van comes out and they just fold into the seat. And you're like, ha, well, I want that van. I've got a new van, 99% of the world would just die to have, but I want that van with the rollaway seats. It's the way we are. Listen to what he says. When you withhold what you should give, you suffer want. You have it, but you don't enjoy it. So why does God want us to give? I mean, I mean what's, what's God going for here? Is it warm in here, or is it the topic? I think I'm coming, I'm coming under deep conviction right now, I think. <laughs> no, so, so God is chiding them, and he's calling them to give, and they're not giving by faith, and they're called to give by faith. They, they see his faithfulness, and they're called to give in faithfulness. Now, but but look, look next what happens. So they're convicted. Ah. Uh, And so he tells them what to do. They appeal to him as to what they should do. He says in verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. So what he's saying is, he's saying, here's how you walk in freedom of giving. Bring the full tithe in. What he's saying here is bring it in abundantly. Bring it in joyfully. And what he's saying is, test me in this. Now, you know in Scripture, generally speaking, you're never called to test God. God tests man. Man never tests God. And yet God is saying uniquely here, test me. See if I don't throw open heaven, if I don't pour down blessings upon you. The only other time that expression is used in terms of opening up the windows of heaven is when he floodeth the earth. God can bring down such abundance on his people when they come to him in faith. Just like he did the flood. There was no shortage of rain in the flood. There's no shortage of God's ability. He's saying, test me. He's saying, see if you can strain my faithfulness. Now, I think in this case, God did bring rain to grow the crops so that they would have a harvest. But notice what else he does. He says, I will rebuke the devourer, in verse 11, for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. In other words, what would happen is a drought would come, and pests, that devourer, literally eater, probably a locust, they would be able to lie dormant. When the rains would come, new growth would start, and then boom, the pests are right there to eat away what's finally beginning to grow. And God says, you know what? I'll take care of the rain. I'll take care of the pests. Every contingency is met by me. So God will be faithful to provide for us. That was the call to the nation of Israel, to stop robbing God. They were robbing God. Now, how how does this apply to us? In other words, how do we take this teaching I mean, should we just, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, 
most building committees will say start in 310 and, and preach bringing the full tithe. That's how we raise money. Is that legitimate? Should we, are we commanded to tithe as New Testament Christians? This is important because God's blessing in this passage rests upon our tithing. And yet, in the evangelical church, in the conservative church, in those people who give the most, zero, 10% of evangelicals give zero. Nada, nothing. 10% of evangelicals. This church, 10% of you give nothing if we are in accordance with the standard evangelical church, which I know you're better than they are. (laughs) 36% give less than 2%. So it is an important question. If his blessing falls upon faithful giving, and if his judgment falls upon faithless giving, then isn't it a question we want to know? Now I want to try to explain something to you, because... Because it gets a little sticky here. Um, That's the question. Should we tithe? There is something called, uh, when you read scriptures, when you go from Malachi to Matthew, that's an important move from old to new. There's something called the continuity of scripture and the discontinuity. So there are certain things in the Old Testament that continue to the New Testament. So the call to love God, the call to love neighbor, the call to pray. Those things just move from old to new. They're kind of a straight line, if you will. There's the command to do it here, and there's the command to do it here. There's no glitch. There's no bump. That's the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. There's great continuity. They aren't two different books. They're one book. But there's also certain things that we speak about the discontinuity of Scripture. The things don't continue in the new as they were in the old. I'm going to explain why this is important to you. There's discontinuity. For example, circumcision was commanded as a mark of the people of God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that's discontinued. It isn't stopped, it flowers. It, it grows to what it's supposed to be. In other words, circumcision was pointing to something that now baptism represents. Or, for example, in the Old Testament, you were commanded to sacrifice a lamb for your sins. That was a command of God. Well, we don't do that anymore. But what we do is we believe in the lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. So, so what you have is the lamb in the Old Testament doesn't continue, but it, it morphs and grows into being Christ. Uh, or the nature of worshiping on the Sabbath. You were commanded to worship on Saturday, but, but that discontinues, and now we worship on Sunday. We worship Christ. So, so in the New Testament, things flower and grow. The Old Testament is a shadow pointing to the substance of the New Testament. See the same thing with the people of God. The people of God in the Old Testament were marked by being an ethnically distinguished from Abraham. Ethnic distinction. But in the New Testament, it's a children of Abraham, according to Romans 4, is children of Abraham are by faith, not by ethnicity. Okay, so the question then is, does the command to tithe go from the old to the new? This is a hotly debated question. A lot of people would say, yes, it just goes straight across. But there is no command in the New Testament to tithe. Now, before you wipe your brow, before you think, oh, that's good because I'm not tithing. The New Testament seems to deepen things. For example, 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said to not commit murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, you're subject to judgment. I can promise you that I've never committed murder. And so I can feel pretty righteous about my life. But when Jesus introduced that little twist, now all of a sudden I'm on the dock. I'm now before God. He said, if um, you've heard it said to not commit adultery, well, I've never committed adultery. I'm in the clear there. He says, but if you lust after a woman, then you've committed adultery. Well, now I'm not so in the clear. So, so Jesus in the New Testament seems to take things and move them internal, not just externally. Same thing with giving. Jesus said, if you have two coats, give one away. Well, that's 50%, not 10%. And so what do we do? Is it a command to follow? Interestingly, in Matthew 23, 23, when Jesus is castigating the Pharisees, he says to them, he says, you tithe mint and cumin. In other words, they were tithing even their herbs. He says, but you've ignored the weightier things of the law. He was charging them. If you're going to tithe your mint and your cumin and your basil, then you ought to follow the heavier things in the law too. Now that doesn't discount. Jesus didn't abrogate tithing there. He didn't affirm it necessarily, but he definitely didn't negate it. And so what do we do with tithing? Tithing, well, I think like the other commands, he moves them internal. I think he moves this internally. In other words, we are not necessarily commanded to tithe, but we are called to give. Now, here's why. Do you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I rooted this whole thing on the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful. And God began with the children of Israel in verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, your existence is because of my faithfulness to a covenant to save you. Now, listen, that was the basis from which they were called to give. If God's giving me life and breath and everything, of course I can give him. Gladly, joyfully, I will show him my love and faith in him by my giving to him. Because he's giving me everything. Folks, it is so logical. If he's giving you breath, isn't it safe to contribute happily to his causes? Okay, but now in the New Testament, God's faithfulness isn't just in preserving a people. God demonstrates his faithfulness in the New Testament through giving a son to recreate a people. That now in Christ, we have been recreated. Our sins have been forgiven. Our guilt has been removed. Our shame has been eradicated. We've been adopted. We've been filled with the Spirit. We've been declared a son and daughter of God. So his faithfulness wasn't just in the preserving of Israel, but now it's come to full bloom, and his faithfulness is seen in providing a son who has reconciled us to the Father. So God's faithfulness can never be questioned by us. Why? Because he's given us the son. Even Paul said that. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? He's totally faithful. He's given us the Son. He's culminated the covenant. He's given us one who now is at the right hand of God interceding for us until we see him face to face. So everything has been careful. That's why it says in 2 Peter that all things pertaining to life and godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. That's Christ. So what, he's saying, what I'm saying now is let's put the 10% on ice for a minute. The New Testament seems to call for a greater generosity a profound willingness to serve others with what we have been served with because God's faithfulness is now absolutely clear. I I hope you see it. If you don't take anything away from the sermon, 
besides my wife being referenced as a gorilla. If you don't take anything away besides that, I want you to take away that God's faithfulness in the Old Testament, which was fueling joy-filled giving, his faithfulness now is demonstrated unfathomably in Christ. So then what does it mean in terms of forgiving? Because we like rules. We like to know what I'm supposed to do now. So let me just give you a couple things to think about. I don't want you to try to practice them all tomorrow. I just want you to think about them, to consider them. Number one, because his faithfulness has been so demonstrated in Christ, I th- my argument, and it's not fully agreed upon within scholarship, but I think the tithe is moved to the side. And I think it's deepened by, number one, we're to give God ourselves. So in other words, it begins with understanding I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I think before we even talk about giving of finances, we talk about giving ourselves. That we are to absolutely recognize he has given the son for me. I will give myself to him. And if it doesn't start there, then tithes can be just as much a a point of legalism as anything else. That you're giving yourself to God. Folks, I think about in uh, Romans 12.1 when he says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the mercies of God, by the faithfulness of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So first, are you doing this? Before we even talk about giving, are we being faithful with our lives? I'm wanting you to go home today and think, have I given myself fully to God? I mean, for 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 the Christian here, remember, every day it's faith and repentance, faith and repentance. Every day we're looking to follow Christ well. But for the non-Christian here, I would just ask you to consider, who are you living for? I mean, how does this word hit you? To the non-Christian, are you just thinking, I'm, I'm going to end, the, I mean, the guy at the end with the most toys wins? I mean, at least consider with me, what does it all end up being? Where will you end up being? So, so, so just think about that. So the first thing is that we give ourselves fully to God. Secondly, I think we're called to give generously. You know, this is why I want to move away from the tithe. And, and, and here's why. The, I know the elders right now are probably shaking, but I want to move away from the tithe because the tithe can be, okay, great, I've given 10%, I've done my thing. God's not looking at the other 90% I'm squandering all over the place, but I've given my tithe. The tithe is measurable. I did it, I'm finished. This is what Carol and I have, I have come under a deeper conviction for. This is honest scout's truth here. I have come under conviction that there is a satisfaction when I meet a goal. And, and, and basically then I can turn my faith off and live with the rest of the 90%. So, so tithing can often lead us into just legalistic obedience. And, and I think the calls to give generously, I was kind of impressed in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking to the, uh, to the church in Corinth and he's saying to not give. They were in desperate poverty. And it says in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, it says, they plead it with him to give. There's a generosity. There's an excitement to be able to give because we're only giving that which has been given to us. So we want to give ourselves. We want to give generously. We also want to give um, expectantly. He says that I'm going to open up heaven for you. I'm going to pour down blessings upon you. Now, I do believe in some measure that may have some material implications to it, that God does give money or does give wealth to people that is to be given to others. But I think that it's speaking more. In the New Testament, it's deepened. 
and he's speaking to the blessings that he gives tend to be more spiritual. In other words, you are to be expectant when you give, but you're not necessarily to be expectant of God giving to you now. That's the message of the prosperity teachers. The prosperity of the teachers say, if you give expectantly and you expect God to give it, you can expect it in this life. Well, Jesus kind of said something different. He said, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. So he's saying, yes, you can expect treasures, but not here. You want them where moth and rust don't destroy. You want them with God. So there is an expectation that we are to have when we give, that God's honored and that God will reward us, but it's not in this life necessarily in material possession, that there is an expectancy, but it's for that which is to come. I think we're also called to give faithfully. You know, he says, test me in this, that giving is by faith. In other words, we're not simply giving what we have. That doesn't require faith. If I've got 10000 in the bank and I give 1000 that doesn't demand a lot because I already have it. I think testing me in this is he's saying, give what you don't currently have. In other words, make a plan. How can I give in a way that requires me to trust God, not just giving what I have? Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't, I, don't want to be a, I don't want to give some arbitrary number or some arbitrary action for you. I just want you thinking, how can I give faithfully? You know, faith demands that you, ex- you believe that God exists, according to Hebrews 11.6. And, and I, think about, I think about when I die, so as I was reminded, you know, five minutes after I die, what will I wish I had given? In other words, when you see it's all true, I know your understanding of giving will change. Well, let me do that now. I think about Scrooge, you know, so we're coming with Christmas time, and Scrooge, among other things, um, you know, so think about Scrooge, right? He's a very sour, tight-fisted man. But when he gets a dose of the reality of God, at least in Dickens' portrayal, boy, he's very free with his money, and he's very happy about being free with his money. So giving faithfully involves that. Also give proportionally, proportional to what you make, proportional to how you're able to give. I mean, that's the one thing about the tithe again. The tithe is 10%, and yet in 1 Corinthians 16.2, the New Testament deepens it. The New Testament says give as you prosper. So as God blesses you. See, God blesses you with a higher, perhaps, amount of Funds that you receive, not to increase your standard of living, but perhaps to increase your standard of giving. So, so again, as I mentioned, some of the, the stats at the beginning of the sermon, here's a stat that always boggles my mind. Those making under $25,000 a year give more than twice those making over $75,000 a year. Why is that? Well, our likes and desires increase, so we don't have to give. You know, John Wesley made 30 pounds in his first year. When he got a hold of this, 30 pounds in his first year, he gave 28 pounds away. The next year he made 60, and he he gave 32 away. He still lived at that same 28. Next year he made 100, then he gave 62 away. He still lived at the 28. So as incomes increase, it doesn't mean that our lifestyles have to increase in the same measure, but it, it can increase the way that we give. And, and then last, I would just say that we want to give um, uh, intentionally. You know, if you notice in verse 12, he says, then all the nations will call you blessed. 
If, if you saw me stuck a little bit in the middle of the sermon, it was because I forgot a chunk of it that I now remember. So, to give intentionally would be to walk out verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. It's funny how the Lord will reorder our sermons midstream like this. So, I'm asking you to give yourself to give generously and to give expectantly and faithfully and proportionally. Also give intentionally. The reason that God gives to us is so that we can give to others. Notice the whole passage flows into verse 12. Then the nations will call you blessed. God blesses a people so as to be a blessing. That's the intention of it. That when we give, we're giving to others. And not just giving to others, but we're giving to others so that they might Give thanks to God. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians. He says, for you know, sorry, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See, what God is showing us here, especially in the Old Testament, is that God was blessing Israel so that they would be a blessing to the nations. Now, that should ring your ears, and you should think, blessing to the nations. That's the promise that God made to Abraham back back in Genesis 12. He says this in Genesis 12. He says, I am the Lord. I said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The purpose of God's generosity to us is that we will be blessed to bless others so that they will come to God for salvation. We are called to be a people. Israelites were called to do it. They failed. The church is now called to be a people that is so amazingly radically self-giving, sacrificing, generous, kind, merciful, that people would look at us and wonder how great is the God that we serve. We don't need evangelism programs. We need to be generous. And as we're generous, people will come and see how contrary to the world that is. And they wonder, who is the God that you serve? We see this in Psalm 67. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on the earth and your salvation among the nations. So he's saying here that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make my face to shine upon you so that his ways may be known, that his salvation may be declared to the nations. So folks, this isn't simply about raising money. It's not simply about keeping the church afloat. It's, It's about the way you handle your money is a window into your soul. God's been faithful to you. Are we being faithful to give in such a way that people would see it and understand the greatness of God. So let me, let me start in prayer. Ray's going to close this in just a minute. This is our time of, of corporate reflection. We've heard the word broken. Um, this is, it's like another, when the Lord says, return to me, he's calling us to repent and return if we have been greedy, and if we have been tight-fisted, if we have failed to see the faithfulness of God. 
Folks, this is a word that can help you or you can ignore it. If you ignore it, um, yeah, then it's just wasted. It's wasted for you. Uh, But my prayer is that it will impact you and that you're going to alter. You're going to respond. You're going to repent. You're going to return. Because they ask, how can we return? And, And I've just tried to explain to you how. So let me start us in prayer. Um, and then Ray will close us in a few minutes. Father, thank you for your grace, the faithfulness that you have displayed to us in Christ. Father, help us to, um, Father, give us the grace to see your faithfulness and respond with a life of faith, not just giving, but serving, loving, being faithful in marriages, being pure in our minds, walking with integrity in life. Father, may the faithfulness of Christ fuel us to be faithful in this life.